Chapter Three, Part Two of Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Three, Practical Politics, Part Two. There were other Republicans like Isaac Hunt and Jonas Van Duzer and Walter Howe and Henry Sprague, who were among my close friends and allies and a gigantic one-eyed veteran of the Civil War, a gallant general, Curtis, from St. Lawrence County, and a capital fellow, whom afterwards, when governor, I put on the bench, Cruz, from Cattaraugus County. Cruz was a German by birth, as far as I know, the only German from Cattaraugus County at that time, and besides being a German, he was also a prohibitionist. Among the Democrats were Hamden Robb and Thomas Newbold, and Tom Welch of Niagara, who did a great service in getting the State to set aside Niagara Falls Park, after a discouraging experience with the first governor before whom we brought the bill, who listened with austere patience to our arguments in favor of the State establishing a park, and then conclusively answered us by the question, "'But, gentlemen, why should we spend the people's money when just as much water will run over the falls without a park as with it?' Then there were a couple of members from New York and Brooklyn, Mike Costello and Pete Kelly. Mike Costello had been elected as a Tammany man. He was as fearless as he was honest. He came from Ireland, and had accepted the Tammany Fourth of July orations as indicating the real attitude of that organization towards the rights of the people. A month or two in Albany converted him to a profound distrust of applied Tammany methods. He and I worked hand in hand with equal indifference to our local machines. His machine leaders warned him fairly that they would throw him out at the next election, which they did, but he possessed a seasoned hickory toughness of ability to contend with adverse circumstances, and kept his head well above water. A better citizen does not exist, and our friendship has never faltered. Peter Kelly's fate was a tragedy. He was a bright, well-educated young fellow, an ardent believer in Henry George. At the beginning he and I failed to understand each other or get on together, for our theories of government were radically opposed. After a couple of months spent in active contest with men whose theories had nothing whatever to do with their practices, Kelly and I found in our turn that it really did not make much difference what our abstract theories were on questions that were not before the legislature, in view of the fact that on the actual matters before the legislature, the most important of which involved questions of elementary morality, we were heartily at one. We began to vote together and act together, and by the end of the session found that in all practical matters that were up for action, we thought together. Indeed, each of us was beginning to change his theories, so that even in theory we were coming closer together. He was ardent and generous. He was a young lawyer, with a wife and children, whose ambition had tempted him into politics, and who had been befriended by the local bosses under the belief that they could count upon him for anything they really wished. Unfortunately, what they really wished was often corrupt. Kelly defied them, fought the battles of the people with ardor and good faith, and when the bosses refused him a renomination, he appealed from them to the people. When we both came up for re-election, I won easily in my district, where circumstances conspired to favor me, and Kelly, with exactly the same record that I had, except that it was more creditable because he took his stand against greater odds, was beaten in his district. Defeat to me would have meant merely chagrin, to Kelly it meant terrible material disaster. He had no money. Like every rigidly honest man, he had found that going into politics was expensive, and that his salary as assemblyman did not cover the financial outgo. 
He had lost his practice, and he had incurred the ill-will of the powerful, so that it was impossible at the moment to pick up his practice again, and the worry and disappointment affected him so much, that shortly after election he was struck down with sickness. Just before Christmas some of us were informed that Kelly was in such financial straits that he and his family would be put out into the street before New Year. This was prevented by the action of some of his friends who had served with him in the legislature, and he recovered, at least to a degree, and took up the practice of his profession. But he was a broken man. In the legislature in which he served, one of his fellow Democrats from Brooklyn was the speaker, Alfred C. Chapin, the leader and the foremost representative of the reformed democracy, whom Kelly zealously supported. A few years later, Chapin, a very able man, was elected mayor of Brooklyn on a reform democratic ticket. Shortly after his election, I was asked to speak at a meeting in a Brooklyn club at which various prominent citizens, including the mayor, were present. I spoke on civic decency, and toward the close of my speech I sketched Kelly's career for my audience, told them how he had stood up for the rights of the people of Brooklyn, and how the people had failed to stand up for him, and the way he had been punished, precisely because he had been a good citizen who acted as a good citizen should act. I ended by saying that the reformed democracy had now come into power, that Mr. Chapin was mayor, and that I very earnestly hoped recognition would at last be given to Kelly for the fight he had waged at such bitter cost to himself. My words created some impression, and Mayor Chapin at once said that he would take care of Kelly and see that justice was done him. I went home that evening much pleased. In the morning, at breakfast, I received a brief note from Chapin in these words. It was at nine last evening when you finished speaking of what Kelly had done, and when I said that I would take care of him. At ten last night Kelly died. He had been dying while I was making my speech, and he never knew that at last there was to be a tardy recognition of what he had done, a tardy justification for the sacrifices he had made. The man had fought, at heavy cost to himself and with entire disinterestedness, for popular rights, but no recognition for what he had done had come to him from the people, whose interest he had so manfully upheld. Where there is no chance of statistical or mathematical measurement, it is very hard to tell just the degree to which conditions change from one period to another. This is peculiarly hard to do when we deal with such a matter as corruption. Personally, I am inclined to think that in public life we are on the whole a little better and not a little worse than when we were thirty years ago, when I was serving in the New York legislature. I think the conditions are a little better in national, in state, and in municipal politics. Doubtless there are points in which they are worse, and there is an enormous amount that needs reformation, but it does seem to me as if, on the whole, things had slightly improved. When I went into politics, New York City was under the control of Tammany, which was from time to time opposed by some other, and evanescent, city democratic organization. The up-country Democrats had not yet fallen under Tammany sway, and were on the point of developing a big-country political boss in the shape of David B. Hill. The Republican Party was split into the stalwart and half-breed factions. Accordingly, neither party had one dominant boss, or one dominant machine, each being controlled by jarring and warring bosses and machines. The corruption was not what it had been in the days of Tweed, when outside individuals controlled the legislators like puppets nor was there any such centralization of the boss system as occurred later. Many of the members were under the control of local bosses or local machines. But the corrupt work was usually done through the members directly. Of course I never had anything in the nature of legal proof of corruption, and the figures I am about to give are merely approximate. 
but three years' experience convinced me, in the first place, that there were a great many thoroughly corrupt men in the legislature, perhaps a third of the whole number, and in the next place, that the honest men outnumbered the corrupt men, and that if it were ever possible to get an issue of right or wrong put vividly and unmistakably before them, in a way that would arrest their attention, and that would arrest the attention of their constituents, we could count on the triumph of the right. The trouble was that in most cases the issue was confused. To read some kinds of literature one would come to the conclusion that the only corruption in legislative circles was in the form of bribery by corporations, and that the line was sharp between the honest man who was always voting against corporations, and the dishonest man who was always bribed to vote for them. My experience was the direct contrary of this. For every one bill introduced, not passed, corruptly to favor a corporation, there were at least ten introduced, not passed, and in this case not intended to be passed, to blackmail corporations. The majority of the corrupt members would be found voting for the blackmailing bills if they were not paid, and would also be found voting in the interests of the corporation if they were paid. The blackmailing, or as they were always called, the strike bills, could themselves be roughly divided into two categories, bills which it would have been proper to pass, and those that it would not have been proper to pass. Some of the bills aimed at corporations were utterly wild and improper, and of these a proportion might be introduced by honest and foolish zealots, whereas most of them were introduced by men who had not the slightest intention of passing them, but who wished to be paid not to pass them. The most profitable type of bill to the accomplished blackmailer, however, was a bill aimed at real corporate abuse, which the corporation, either from wickedness or folly, was unwilling to remedy. Of the measures introduced in the interest of corporations, there were also some that were proper and some that were improper. The corrupt legislators, the black horse cavalry as they were termed, would demand payment to vote as the corporations wished, no matter whether the bill was proper or improper. Sometimes, if the bill was a proper one, the corporation would have the virtue or the strength of mind to refuse to pay for its passage, and sometimes it would not. A very slight consideration of the above state of affairs will show how difficult it was at times to keep the issue clear, for honest and dishonest men were continually found side by side voting now against and now for a corporation measure, the one set from proper and the other set from grossly improper motives. Of course, part of the fault lay in the attitudes of the outsiders. It was very early borne in upon me that almost equal harm was done by indiscriminate defense of, and indiscriminate attack on, corporations. It was hard to say whether the man who prided himself upon always antagonizing the corporations, or the man who, on the plea that he was a good conservative, always stood up for them, was the more mischievous agent of corruption and demoralization. In one fight in the House over a bill, as to which there was a bitter contest between two New York City street railway organizations, I saw lobbyists come down on the floor itself, and draw venal men out into the lobbies, with almost no pretense of concealing what they were doing. In another case, in which the elevated railway corporations of New York City, against the protest of the mayor and the other local authorities, rushed through a bill remitting over half their taxes, some of the members who voted for the measure probably thought it was right, but every corrupt man in the House voted with them, and the man must indeed have been stupid who thought that these votes were given disinterestedly. The effective fight against this bill for the revision of the elevated railway taxes, perhaps the most openly crooked measure which, during my time, was pushed at Albany, was waged by Mike Costello and myself. We used to spend a good deal of time in industrious research into the various bills introduced, 
so as to find out what their authors really had in mind, this research, by the way, being highly unappreciated and much resented by the authors. In the course of his researches, Mike had been puzzled by an unimportant bill, seemingly related to a constitutional amendment introduced by a local saloon-keeper, whose interests, as far as we knew, were wholly remote from the Constitution, or from any form of abstract legal betterment. However, the measure seemed harmless, we did not interfere, and it passed the House. Mike, however, followed its career in the Senate, and at the last moment, almost by accident, discovered that it had been amended by the simple process of striking out everything after the enacting clause, and unobtrusively substituting the proposal to remit the elevated railway taxes. The authors of the change wished to avoid unseemly publicity. Their hope was to slip the measure through the legislature and have it instantly signed by the governor, before any public attention was excited. In the Senate, their plan worked to perfection. There was in the Senate no fighting leadership of the forces of decency, and for such leadership of the non-fighting type, the representatives of corruption cared absolutely nothing. By bold and adroit management the substitution in the Senate was effected without opposition or comment. The bill, in reality, of course, an absolutely new and undebated bill, then came back to the House nominally as a merely amended measure, which, under the rules, was not open to debate unless the amendment was first by vote rejected. This was the great bill of the session for the lobby, and the lobby was keenly alive to the need of quick, wise action. No public attention, whatever, had so far been excited. Every measure was taken to secure immediate and silent action. A powerful leader, whom the beneficiaries of the bill trusted, a fearless and unscrupulous man, of much force and great knowledge of parliamentary law, was put in the chair. Costello and I were watched, and when for a moment we were out of the House, the bill was brought over from the Senate, and the clerk began to read it, all the black horse cavalry, in expectant mood, being in their seats. But Mike Costello, who was in the clerk's room, happened to catch a few words of what was being read. In he rushed, dispatched a messenger for me, and began a single-handed filibuster. The speaker pro tem called him to order. Mike continued to speak in protest. The speaker hammered him down. Mike continued his protest, the sergeant-at-arms was sent to arrest and remove him, and then I bounced in, and continued the protest, and refused to sit down or be silent. Amid wild confusion the amendment was declared adopted, and the bill was ordered engrossed and sent out to the governor. But we had carried our point. The next morning the whole press rang with what had happened. Every detail of the bill, and every detail of the way it had been slipped through the legislature, were made public. All the slow and cautious men in the House, who had been afraid of taking sides, now came forward in support of us. Another debate was held on the proposal to rescind the vote. The city authorities waked up to protest. The governor refused to sign the bill. Two or three years later, after much litigation, the taxes were paid. In the newspapers it was stated that the amount was over one million five hundred thousand dollars. It was Mike Costello to whom primarily was due the fact that this sum was saved the public, and that the forces of corruption received a stinging rebuff. He did not expect recognition or reward for his services, and he got none. The public, if it knew of what he had done, promptly forgot it. The machine did not forget it, and turned him down at the next election. One of the standby strikes was a bill for reducing the elevated railway fare, which at that time was ten cents to five cents. In one legislature the men responsible for the introduction of the bill suffered such an extraordinary change of heart that when the bill came up, being pushed by zealous radicals who really were honest, the introducers actually voted against it. 
A number of us, who had been very doubtful about the principle of the bill, voted for it simply because we were convinced that money was being used to stop it, and we hated to seem to side with the corruptionists. Then there came a wave of popular feeling in its favor, the bill was reintroduced at the next session, the railways very wisely decided that they would simply fight it on its merits, and the entire Black Horse Cavalry contingent, together with all the former friends of the measure, voted against it. Some of us, who in our anger at their methods formally resorted to for killing the bill, had voted for it the previous year, with much heart-searching again voted for it, as I now think unwisely, and the bill was vetoed by the then Governor, Grover Cleveland. I believe the veto was proper, and those who felt as I did supported the veto, for although it was entirely right that the fare should be reduced to five cents, which was soon afterwards done, the method was unwise, and would have set a mischievous precedent." An instance of an opposite kind occurred in connection with a great railway corporation which wished to increase its terminal facilities in one of our great cities. The representatives of the railway brought the bill to me and asked me to look into it, saying that they were well aware that it was the kind of bill that lent itself to blackmail, and that they wished to get it through on its merits, and invited the most careful examination. I looked carefully into it, found that the municipal authorities and the property owners whose property was to be taken favoured it, and also found that it was an absolute necessity from the standpoint of the city, no less than from the standpoint of the railway. So I said I would take charge of it if I had guarantees that no money should be used and nothing improper done in order to push it. This was agreed to. I was then acting as chairman of the committee before which the bill went. A very brief experience proved what I had already been practically sure of, that there was a secret combination of the majority of the committee on a crooked basis. On one pretext or another the crooked members of the committee held the bill up, refusing to report it either favorably or unfavorably. There were one or two members of the committee who were pretty rough characters, and when I decided to force matters I was not sure that we would not have trouble. There was a broken chair in the room, and I got a leg of it loose and put it down beside me where it was not visible, but where I might get at it in a hurry, if necessary. I moved that the bill be reported favorably. This was voted down without debate by the combine, some of whom kept a wooden stolidity of look, while others leered at me with sneering insolence. I then moved that it be reported unfavorably, and again the motion was voted down by the same majority and in the same fashion. I then put the bill in my pocket and announced that I would report it anyhow. This almost precipitated a riot, especially when I explained, in answer to some statements that my conduct would be exposed on the floor of the legislature, that in that case I should give the legislature the reasons why I suspected that the men holding up all report of the bill were holding it up for purposes of blackmail. The riot did not come off, partly, I think, because the opportune production of the chair-leg had a sedative effect, and partly owing to wise counsels from one or two of my opponents. Accordingly I got the bill reported to the legislature and put on the calendar, but here it came to a dead halt. I think this was chiefly because most of the newspapers which noticed the matter at all treated it in such a cynical spirit as to encourage the men who wished to blackmail. These papers reported the introduction of the bill, and said that all the hungry legislators were clamoring for their share of the pie, and they accepted as certain the fact that there was going to be a division of pie. This succeeded in frightening honest men, and also in relieving the rogues, the former were afraid they would be suspected of receiving money if they voted for the bill, and the latter were given a shield behind which to stand until they were paid. I was wholly unable to move the bill forward in the legislature, and finally a representative of the railway told me that he thought he would like to take the bill out of my hands, 
that I did not seem able to get it through, and that perhaps some older and more experienced leader could be more successful. I was pretty certain what this meant, but of course I had no kind of proof, and moreover I was not in a position to say that I could promise success. Accordingly the bill was given into the charge of a veteran, whom I believed to have been personally an honest man, but who was not inquisitive about the motives influencing his colleagues. This gentleman, who went by a nickname which I shall incorrectly call the Bald Eagle of Weehawken, was efficient and knew his job. After a couple of weeks a motion to put the bill through was made by the Bald Eagle, the Black Horse Cavalry, whose feeling had undergone a complete change in the intervening time, voted unanimously for it, in company with all the decent members, and that was the end. Now here was a bit of work in the interest of a corporation, and in the interest of a community, which the corporation at first tried honestly to have put through on its merits. The blame for the failure lay primarily in the supine indifference of the community to legislative wrongdoing, so long as only the corporations were blackmailed. Except as above mentioned, I was not brought in contact with big business, save in the effort to impeach a certain judge. This judge had been used as an instrument in their business by certain of the men connected with the elevated railways, and other great corporations at that time. We got hold of his correspondence with one of these men, and it showed a shocking willingness to use the judicial office in any way that one of the kings of finance of that day desired it. He had actually held court in one of the financier's rooms— one expression in one of the judge's letters to this financier I shall always remember. I am willing to go to the very verge of judicial discretion to serve your vast interests. The curious thing was that I was by no means certain that the judge himself was corrupt. He may have been, but I am inclined to think that, aside from his being a man of coarse moral fibre, the trouble lay chiefly in the fact that he had a genuine, if I had not so often seen it, I would say a wholly inexplicable, reverence for the possessor of a great fortune as such. He sincerely believed that business was the end of existence, and that judge and legislator alike should do whatever was necessary to favour it, and the bigger the business the more he desired to favour it. Big business of the kind that is allied with politics thoroughly appreciated the usefulness of such a judge, and every effort was strained to protect him. We fought hard. By we I mean some thirty or forty legislators, both Republicans and Democrats, but the black horse cavalry, amid the timid good men, and the dull conservative men, were all against us, and the vote in the legislature was heavily against impeachment. The minority of the committee that had investigated him, with Chapin at its head, recommended impeachment. The argument for impeachment before the committee was made by Francis Lynde Stetson. It was my first experience of the kind. Various men, whom I had known well socially, and had been taught to look up to, prominent businessmen and lawyers, acted in a way which not only astounded me, but which I was quite unable to reconcile with the theories I had formed as to their high standing. I was a little more than a year out of college at the time. Generally, as has always been the case since, they were careful to avoid any direct conversation with me on a concrete case of what we now call privilege in business and in politics, that is, of the alliance between business and politics which represents improper favours rendered to some men in return for improper conduct on the part of others being ignored or permitted. One member of a prominent law firm, an old family friend, did, however, take me out to lunch one day, evidently for the purpose of seeing just what it was that I wished and intended to do. I believe he had a genuine personal liking for me. He explained that I had done well in the legislature, that it was a good thing to have made the reform play, that I had shown that I possessed ability such as would make me useful in the right kind of law office or business concern, 
but that I must not overplay my hand, that I had gone far enough, and that now was the time to leave politics and identify myself with the right kind of people, the people who would always, in the long run, control others and obtain the real rewards which were worth having. I asked him if that meant that I was to yield to the ring in politics. He answered, somewhat impatiently, that I was entirely mistaken, as in fact I was, about there being merely a political ring, of the kind of which the papers were fond of talking, that the ring, if it could be called such, that is, the inner circle, included certain big businessmen, and the politicians, lawyers, and judges who were in alliance with, and to a certain extent dependent upon them, and that the successful man had to win his success by the backing of the same forces, whether in law, business, or politics. This conversation not only interested me, but made such an impression that I always remembered it, for it was the first glimpse I had of that combination between business and politics, which I was in after years so often to oppose. In the America of that day, and especially among people whom I knew, the successful business man was regarded by everybody as preeminently the good citizen. The orthodox books on political economy, not only in America but in England, were written for his especial glorification. The tangible rewards came to him, the admiration of his fellow-citizens of the respectable type was apt to be his, and the severe newspaper moralists who were never tired of denouncing politicians and political methods were wont to hold up business methods as the ideal which we were to strive to introduce into political life. Herbert Crawley, in The Promise of American Life, has set forth the reasons why our individualistic democracy, which taught that each man was to rely exclusively on himself, was in no way to be interfered with by others, and was to devote himself to his own personal welfare, necessarily produced the type of businessman who sincerely believed, as did the rest of the community, that the individual who amassed a big fortune was the man who was the best and most typical American. In the legislature, the problems which I dealt with were mainly problems of honesty and decency, and of legislative and administrative efficiency. They represented the effort, the wise, the vitally necessary effort, to get efficient and honest government. But as yet I understood little of the effort which was already beginning, for the most part under very bad leadership, to secure a more genuine social and industrial justice. Nor was I especially to blame for this. The good citizens I then knew best, even when themselves men of limited means, men like my colleague Billy O'Neill, and my backwoods friends Sewell and Dow, were no more awake than I was to the changing needs the changing times were bringing. Their outlook was as narrow as my own, and within its limits as fundamentally sound. End of chapter 3, part 2